Welcome to the AMC Stock Story Podcast. I'm your host, Russell Corey, and this is not financial advice, and I am not a financial advisor. This is solely for entertainment purposes, as I talk about my experiences of investing in AMC stock and becoming an AMC ape. Episode 26, The Sell Button. So I want to start this podcast um, first by doing something I should have done on the last podcast. I brought up Afghanistan, and I didn't say anything about the U.S. service members that lost their lives there, and that was a mistake. So for those Marines that died, um, there's nothing we can say to make up for that sacrifice, but we, we salute them and we thank them for their service and their sacrifice. And I was watching the news tonight. And I was particularly touched. They um, finally had a name and a face to one of the Marines. And he was a 20-year-old kid. And I couldn't help but think back to September 11th, 2001. We're coming up on the 20th anniversary of that tragic day. And I I think of two things. I remember on that day, I'm, I'm sure everybody remembers it. But one of my thoughts was, you know, I can't wait for to be 20 years in the future because it it won't be as painful as it is right now. But then I also thought I knew I'd be in my 50s. I'd be, you know, for lack of a better word, an old man. And then the other thing I, I thought about tonight, that on that day, you know, there, there were new parents and... And they had a little baby with them. And they probably watched on their TV sets as 9-11 happened. I guess this this young Marine, I think he was from Wyoming. Um, or Montana was out, out in one of the, the western states. And they had this little baby. And I'm sure they were concerned about what kind of future was their son going to grow up. Was there a threat to them? Even you know where they were, I don't know where they would necessarily be living. Um, at the time, but, you know, was there a threat to their young baby? And, you know, we got through it. And shortly after September 11th, I think it was October, we sent troops in. It was a small force that we sent into Afghanistan, but it, it started the ball rolling on this. In fact, the first person that died in that operation, it was a, a CIA officer and um, I believe, forgive me, it's John Michael Spawn. But anyway, I remember hearing his story. And I knew, I knew where he was buried in Arlington Cemetery. And I went to D.C. and I wanted to visit his grave to, to pay tribute to him. Because I never served. But I appreciate those who did. My father was a Vietnam veteran. I grew up as an army brat. I considered going in the service, but I don't think I could have hacked it. And I, I don't know how well I do. And considering all the mistakes I make when I learn something and the learning curve I have in life, I don't think I do particularly well in war. So I'm grateful for the people who do serve and those that make the ultimate sacrifice. But I went to see his um, 
marker in, in Arlington. And while I was there, there was another another young guy there. And we we briefly talked about about um, Spawn. And and uh, he was getting ready to, to be deployed. He said he was being deployed. And I said, well, are you in the Army? And he says, no, I, I work for three letters. <laughs> and he, and I, I joke, I don't think it was IBM. That I think this was another CIA agent that was getting ready to go over. This was, this was in 2004, I believe. So we'd, we'd been at it for a few years. But anyway, um, it, I think of that family with their new baby. And I imagine as the years went by, Obviously, we had, you know, the wars in, in Afghanistan and Iraq going on. But things settled down, generally. It it wasn't the nightmare that people might have thought. It, it could have been. My daughter's here with me today. Mia, quiet, please. This is um, it's my daughter, Mia, in the background. So, this kid grew up. And he, they said he always wanted to be a Marine. And he served, and as our involvement with Afghanistan was winding down, he's over there. And you know, he died in this attack, this terrorist bombing. And it's, it's sad because when I saw these pictures of the airport and the thousands of people there, and knowing that this is a volatile, chaotic environment, and you had all these people there. The first thought that was in my mind is, what's stopping some nut job with a suicide bomb or a car bomb from just taking dozens if not hundreds of people out that are just there unprotected in this chaotic environment? And of course it finally had, did happen. So, I, you know, I'm sorry I didn't say anything when I was talking about Afghanistan on the, the prior podcast. Mia, please, quiet, sweetheart. And my heart goes out to the, the families that lost their loved ones. So that being said, it, again, like I said, it puts things in perspective, really what we're trying to do here. And um, we'll be okay. <laughs> Sometimes I think I get a little serious about this, and um, I I need to check myself as well. But we're here to talk about AMC. This is the AMC stock story, and I hope you know in the future, if people go back and they listen to this podcast again, the idea is they get a picture of what it was like to be an investor. You know, it's funny, if you ever watched the Civil War documentary Ken Burns did years ago, it was a great documentary, they, you know, they took writings from presidents, generals, but then they also got, like, personal stories from soldiers that were in the field, you know, or people going through the war at home. And I'd like to think that's maybe what this podcast is. I'm not an influencer with thousands of people listening to this podcast or watching a new YouTube channel. I'm not I'm not the CEO of GameStop or AMC. 
I'm not the SEC, not a hedge fund. You know, I'm just an investor that liked the stock. And I wanted people to kind of get an idea of what it was like to be an investor, the ups, the downs, and um, the frustrations. And I think you could tell maybe by my last couple podcasts that it was getting frustrating for me. Going through the same cycle, watching the ticker. I know you're not supposed to watch the ticker. I do. And honestly, it was frustrating. And then I was I was frustrated by the people that day trade it and swing it and are profiting. And meanwhile, we just sit around holding. And I was getting tired. I think one of the things I liked about the beginning when I be when I became an investor was like when I was going to make a buy. Sometimes they were big buys. You know, when I was transforming my mutual funds into the stock, you know, there were huge thousands of dollars. And I kind of missed that. I kind of missed the action. But that's part of the hedge funds plan is to get us bored, frustrated, get us to sell our AMC. Now, I've always said this podcast was about keeping it real and being honest and talking. So I have something I need to be honest with you about. Now, before, you know, get too angry, some people might get angry with me. Some people, it may not be that big a deal. They'll understand. Um, and maybe some people have already done the same thing. I, I hit the sell button on some AMC stock. Now, it wasn't to take profit because I just, I, whatever I sold, I immediately reinvested it in GameStop. I had everything I owned in the, that Roth and then everything I was putting in my individual investor account was AMC. There were, you know, every once in a while I'd have a few bucks left that I couldn't buy a whole stock of AMC with. And I might buy some. Oh, you're so busy now. I'm reading all your notes, Mia. Thank you for all Mia's giving me updates. I'm reading your notes right now. I'm incorporating it into the podcast. Can you say hi to everybody, Mia? Hi, everybody. Say, listen to my podcast, the Stories for Kids podcast. What, what's your show? What, what's your show that you like to do on Stories for Kids? Mia Monday. Mia Monday. Yeah, she does Mia Monday. So I'm No, stop that. Get that all wrapped in your neck. My daughter's wrapping a cord around her neck. No, Mia. Okay, Mia. Mia, that's enough. Mia. Mia, please. All right, I gotta, I gotta keep going. Okay. All right, let's quiet. Quiet, please. Thank you. So anyway, um, yeah. (laughs) Um, so I hit the sell button and I converted some AMC shares into GameStop. Not much. Now, on my individual account, this is the stuff I could cash out now and get the money, you know, transferred over to my checking account. One, I just bought one share of GME. It was basically five shares of AMC equals one share of GME at this point. And then in the Roth, which I can't touch for um, seven years... I, I converted um, a, a around 80 shares, I think, to 16, um, 16 shares of GameStop. So why did I do this? 
Well, there's a couple reasons. I'll be honest and upfront about the first one. I think I was bored. I think I was just bored. And, um, you know, I thought about what I could do. And I didn't want to take profit. I didn't want to swing AMC. But I, I wanted to do something. Now, I did notice the other day when, when GameStop made a big move. It went from about 150, 160 to, to over 200. And I was impressed with that. Now, obviously, it would have been nice to bought GameStop at 150, 160, but even then, I, I didn't really have the cash to do that. I would have had to have converted AMC shares. And at that point, it still would have equaled probably about five AMC shares. AMC was in the 30, so GameStop's in you know 150, and you'd need... Um, I think you'd need five shares, so. I think I was just bored. I wanted a different number to look at. So I did it. Now, the interesting thing is, so this is this was the first day when I actually watched, was watching both tickers. And what I would notice is they, and you've seen this, people have posted charts of GME and AMC together, and they look very similar. Not identical, but very, very similar. And it's true. They One goes up, I check the other one. It's going up too. One goes down, I check the other one. It's going down too. So it it's interesting in that regard that they are very similar. And it, maybe it was just a parallel play that you probably, you know, who knows. It either I'm sure one will do a little better than the other. I don't know which one. Um, but it's not like it was a whole different stock. I didn't go chasing support. Or any of these other stocks that people call out as, like, it's getting ready to surge, it's getting ready to squeeze. Okay, thank you, Mia. Um, okay. Okay. So, you know, if you feel I've betrayed the AMC community by doing this, okay. Fair enough. You know, the vast majority of my holdings are still AMC. I don't know. I have a calculator. I don't have my calculator on me. Let me see. I can tell you right now. Um, yeah, I would say at least 98% of my holdings. 95 um, in my cash. 90, I would say 90, 98, 99% of my cash. Individual investor account is AMC. And then, let's see. Um, and my Roth account is about 93% AMC. And I plan on holding it. I just needed a little something, I think. And uh, hopefully you can forgive me <laughs> for doing that. So what was it like having both stocks? You know, like I said, they, they traded very similarly, except towards the end. AMC went on a nice little run at the end and finished at 41 in the after hours. And the GMC one took a, a little bit of a dip at the end. I think it was like, 203 and change. So I lost, you know, I don't know, a buck and a half or so from where I had bought it. So I lost a little bit on GMC in my first day out. But that's not what I'm in these stocks for. That's not why I'm buying them. Um, there, I'm there for the squeeze. And I think part of it was just kind of hedge my bets a little bit. You know, maybe one of them squeezes first. Maybe one of them squeezes better. The thing I liked about... GME GameStop is that there were less. Yeah, there's my wife. 
Gotta take this, sorry. So, no Mia. Other room. So, you know, I'm leaving all this crap in that you'd normally edit out. Because this is my life. It's my kids hanging around, it's my wife calling me, and everything going on. And, you know, I tried, I honestly tried to get in here, and, and I, I, I do like these podcasts a lot of times in the middle of the night, because everybody's asleep, and that's the only time it's usually quiet enough to do this. And um, I started, my wife went out to do grocery shopping, my kids were watching TV in the other room, and I thought, all right, let me sneak in and get a podcast done, and I don't have to wake up tonight, because there's no ticker anyway, you know, it's the weekend. But this is life. This is what part. Of, this is what it was. I'm sure you have your life. Many of you probably have families. And rather than edit it out, and I thought for this one, you know, just maybe kind of leave it in. So now rummaging around in the office here is my my son James. You want to say hi, James? Hi. There's James. Can you be quiet while I do this? Or are you gonna make noise? I'm gonna make noise. You're gonna make noise. Can you please sit? Okay. All right. All right, so let's see if I can wrap this up. Um, overall, you know, yeah, we, we, you know, we got a high of 48 and we dipped down from that. And that's disappointing. But overall, I think the week was a success. We closed above 40. All those calls are going to be in play now. They're going to have to buy all those shares on Monday and Tuesday. So who knows, maybe on Tuesday, maybe we'll get another little bit of squeeze. It'd be nice, and maybe we can get into the high 40s, uh, maybe even touch 50. And and then on September 1st, which is that uh, Wednesday, um, maybe the, the new restrictions on the margin will prompt some margin calls. And wouldn't that be nice? So, normally, I always say, and maybe that'll trigger the mother of all short squeezes. And that might be the next episode of the AMC Stock Story, when the music plays. But I want to do something different tonight. Um, I'm kind of running out of space on my podcast, on this podcast. I normally, I, I told you this before, I kind of set it up for my novels, the audio version of my novels. And they take up a little bit of room, and then this podcast has taken up room, and I can either pay more to get more storage, or I can delete stuff I I have stored on my podcast. Um, if I do end up taking the novels off, I'd, I'd like it if people maybe listen to them before I do. So tonight, I'm going to give you a sampling of my novel, uh, Zone. If you like the books uh, Robopocalypse or uh, World War Z, you might enjoy it. It doesn't have uh, robots or zombies in it. Instead, it's these um, these portals, these doors that, you know, kind of start popping up all over the world. And some people choose to go in them and some people don't. And it's about how it changes the world. And uh, one of the interesting things is having gone through the pandemic... Um, I think you'll be able to draw some parallels from it. And I wrote this book before the pandemic. So I think it'll be interesting for you listening to it from from that perspective. Um, 
Here's some good news and bad news about these four chapters. If you like the characters in these first four chapters, the bad news is they're not in any other chapter. Um, so the good news is if you don't like them, um, they're not going to be in future chapters. This was done purposely so, and I'll, I'll tell you why. It's so that when you meet characters, you don't know if they're going to you know, disappear or whether they're going to stick around. And hopefully that carries a little more drama. So that kind of sets it up in the beginning. You never know if this character is going to stick around for a little while or whether they're going to, you know, disappear in his own. So that's why that is. Well, I hope you enjoy these first four chapters. The rest of the chapters are on this podcast. Just do a search, episode search, and you can find the other zone chapters. And I, I really hope you enjoy it. Totally free. There are print versions on Amazon, but, you know, I think if you like podcasts, it's a very enjoyable way to experience this this book. Um, anyway, well, the, the book is Zone, written by me, Russell Corey, and I hope you enjoy it. Zone, a novel by Russell Corey, read by the author. For more information, visit russellcorey.com or search amazon.com for more books by Russell Corey, like Tweets from Tattooing and Hashtags from Hoth, both unofficial parodies of Star Wars told in snarky tweets. Chapter 1. Zone 1. Don't destroy it, please. My phone is my life, Dustin begs the homeless woman who is holding his iPhone hostage high in the air. Wait, he didn't know she was homeless? That was way too presumptuous, but she was obviously dealing with some sort of mental illness, hence her overboard reaction to seeing the phone and her subsequent larceny of it. Squeezed tightly in her clenched fist, she's ready to smash the sleek device down on the sidewalk below that divides the Green City Park. Well, you should have thought of that before you took my damn picture, the defiant African-American woman shouts back at Dustin. I wasn't taking your picture. Honest, Dustin pleads, his slightly overweight frame, poised to pounce on the ground in order to save the phone in case she hurls it downward. The phone is wrapped in a Wonka bar case that makes it look like the enraged woman is holding a partially unwrapped bar of chocolate, complete with one of Wonka's golden, coveted golden tickets poking out. They were cooler, hipper phone cases, cases that offered so much more protection and convenience. But the sight of the Wonka bar always made the people Dustin was taking photos of smile that much more. Who didn't, at some point in their life, desire to win one of Willy Wonka's exclusive golden tickets and get a peek inside the mysterious chocolate factory? But the Wonka bar case didn't make the irate woman smile in this instance. Quite the opposite. Dustin only hoped the campy case would offer some sort of protection should she slam the phone down on the coarse pavement below, which was looking more and more likely by the second. Don't lie, you had your phone pointed right damn at me. Mark, Dustin's balding and trim partner, steps in to attempt to cool things down. Mark, older than Dustin by 10 years, was used to being the adult in the room, and the role suited him. Listen, we don't care what you were doing out here. We're not going to tell anybody. We just want the phone back, and we'll be gone. Never see us again. Hold up. What was I doing out here exactly? The woman inquires, gaming for a fight. I don't know, and I don't care. That's my point. Mark explains, trying to keep his emotions in check to avoid further escalation. Was I selling drugs? Is that what I was doing out here? 
No, of course not, Mark senses. This is not going well. So a black woman can't be in the park unless she's selling drugs. The infuriated woman thrusts a determined hand inside her layers of clothes and pulls out her own cell phone and points it squarely at them. I'm putting this racist bullshit on YouTube. Seeing the second phone come out and knowing the power of a social justice viral clip, Mark quickly reaches inside his pants pocket and retrieves his own phone, lifting it up with the camera recording in self-defense. The woman is undeterred by Mark's counteraction. Keep taking my picture. See what I do. Mark tries once more to reason with the woman. We're not racist. We respect you as a human being. We respect your right to be here. This is a public park open to everyone. We just want our phone back. That's all. That's all we're asking for here. Dustin jumps back into the fray by waving his hands wildly in the air. Hang on. Everyone, just put the phones down. Put them down before someone gets hurt. What's your name, ma'am? You want to see my ID? I ain't got to show you shit. Dustin lowers his undulating arms and then takes on the unflappable, charming demeanor of a new neighbor meeting his the cheerful family that moved in next door for the first time. My name is Dustin, and this is my husband, Mark. If you'll let me, I will show you the pictures on my phone, and you will see there are no photos of you on there. And if there are any... I promise I will delete them immediately. Unless I look skinny in the picture, then I'm just cropping you out. Dustin calmly offers up his open palm in a complete show of deference. Mark and I are in the process of adopting a daughter from Guatemala, and the photos of our first meeting with Blanca are on my phone and nowhere else. I understand now why I was freaking out a little bit. Okay, a lot of bit. Dustin's change of posture and tone relaxes the feisty woman, who gradually lets her defiance slip away. My name is my name's Retrice, and I just don't want no one taking my picture. You don't know me. Well, now we do. Nice to meet you, Retrice. With a sigh, the tentatively trusting Retrice reluctantly places the phone back in Mark's freshly manicured hand. Mark then uses his thumbprint to gain access to his photos. He tilts the screen toward Retrice for her inspection. See? No photos of you. Dustin swipes past the pictures that were taken in the park that day and is now well into a road trip to the beach. Damn, you guys got a Tesla? Well, that's our other baby. This was our kite surfing expedition. My idea. I'm the adventurous one. Here, let me show you Blanca, Dustin says. Dustin quickly searches the photos and shows Retrice a few snaps of him and Mark meeting with Blanca, the five-year-old Guatemalan orphan confined to a wheelchair, who seems to warm up to the two men as each photo slides by. Dustin glows at seeing the photos again, bragging that she's going to be the first Latina president. Retrice just shakes her head at the proclamation. Yeah. Yeah, you watch. They're going to shoot homeboy. You know that's coming. Despite their heartwarming nature, or because of it, Retrice quickly grows tired of the pictures and is ready to move on to the next adventure in her life. So why did you have your phone out pointed at me? Mark takes the lead in trying to explain it. We were engaged in an activity that utilized the phone's augmented reality feature in conjunction with the phone's camera. You were doing what? We were playing Pokemon Go. He's just too embarrassed to admit it, Dustin tells the woman. Here, watch. Dustin activates the Pokemon Go app and shows Retrice the screen that, as he scans the phone around the park. Augmented reality uses your phone's camera, and it adds objects to the picture as if they were really there. Just keep watching. 
Patrice is clearly done with the two men and just eager to move on. I'm cool, y'all. She steps away, but Dustin keeps the phone in front of her. No, seriously, I know you think this is geeky and stupid, and it is, but watch, it's really neat. She doesn't care, Dustin. Just let her go. An animated cartoon turtle jumps on the screen, phone screen and moves with the camera's motions, as if Dustin was pointing the camera right at it. Whoa, what's, what's that shit? That's the Pokemon? That is Squirtle. Come here, you little bugger. Dustin slides his fingers on the screen, shooting out a red and white Pokemon ball at Squirtle. The Pokeball opens up and captures Squirtle in a bright beam of light. Gotcha. Look at that shit. It's like it's really there. You should use the IKEA AR app. You can see what any piece of furniture IKEA sells looks like in your home just by taking its picture of whatever room you're furnishing. Can I try? Sure. Just be careful. I won't break it. Dustin passes her the phone while Mark rolls his eyes and gives his partner an exasperated look, as if saying, Dumbass, we just got the stupid phone back from her. Just hold it up like this, Dustin says, instructing Patrice on how to position the phone for the best effect. Patrice is not impressed. There's nothing there now. Well, you have to walk around a little bit. Keep scanning. That's what we were doing when we bumped into you. Didn't even know you were there, to be honest. Mark shakes his head, quietly muttering, Yeah, not until you came up and stole our phone. Patrice misses the snide comment from Mark, as she is now totally lost in the phone. So what happens when I see a squirtle turtle? Uh, just use your finger to toss a pokeball at it. Just then, a black rectangle appears on the screen, while Retrice scans the phone to the right. She halts immediately on the black rectangle, standing tall. Oh shit, I got one! Retrice swipes her finger on the screen, but no balls fly forward. Hey, it ain't working, Retrice protests. The sight of the mysterious black rectangle on the phone puzzles both Dustin and Mark. I'm not sure what that is. Do you know, Mark? Mark looks like a door. Do you go in or does something come out, ponders Mark. Dustin motions to Retrice to hand back the phone. Let me see my phone. I'll check the Pokemon form, see what we're supposed to do. Retrice hands the phone back to Dustin, and when she looks up, she's stunned. Yo, that's just for real. Dustin and Mark also look up from the phone and see that the black rectangle is standing before them in real life. It's as if someone had cut a hole out of reality, and in its place was just this black zone of nothingness. Complete darkness. That wasn't there before, notes Mark. Is it projection? A hologram? Wonders Dustin. They look around. There's no one else in this corner of the park, and there are no signs of the technology that could possibly project such an image, if such technology even existed. Projected from where? There's no one here but us. Retrice is unnerved that Dustin and Mark don't know what this mysterious black rectangle is. You guys seriously don't know what the hell that is? No. Retrice pricks up a stick and tries to touch the black rectangle. I don't know if I'd do that, Mark tepidly warns her. The tip of the branch disappears through the front of the black rectangle. She then swings the stick side to side freely. Man, there's nothing there, Retrice exclaims. But it is there. I see it. We all do. Dustin tries to reason. Sensing no imminent threat, Mark and Dustin join Retrice in front of the rectangle. Dustin reaches out with the tips of his fingers and grazes the surface of the black shape in front of them. Oh my god, Dustin shrieks as his round face lights up and his eyes go wide. Mark pulls his partner's hand away. Don't touch it, are you crazy? Dustin stares back at Mark and Retrice with a stunned look. Are you hurt, Mark inquires. Dustin's stunned look gives way to an amazed smile. That felt awesome. Dustin reaches back out, this time sticking his hole in. Whoa, what a rush. 
Mark reaches out himself and touches the black rectangle briefly. Holy crap, that goes right to your brain. I mean, it just lights it up. I'm, I'm still feeling it. Intrigued, Retrice reaches out her hand in the blackness of the rectangle, too. God damn, I could sell this shit all day. Dustin smiles back at her knowingly, and I'd buy it all damn day. This is like taking E in the 90s. Dustin and Retrice slap a high five with their free hands. Mark tries to tug Dustin away. We shouldn't be doing this. We have no idea what this thing is. Dustin pulls away from Mark and continues to feel inside the rectangle, plunging his arm in deeper until the darkness is up to his elbow. Stop, both of you. This thing could kill us for all we know. Mark grabs both of them and forcibly pulls them away from the dark shape. Their faces go blank for a second, slightly stunned, as if they were electrical devices that somehow gotten plugged from their socket. The two slowly come down from the buzz they got by making contact with a black rectangle. Sorry, but you both have this crazy look on your faces. Retrice shakes her head, feeling more alive than ever before. What is this thing? No idea, Dustin states as he begins to take pictures of the rectangle with his phone. It looks like the monolith from 2001, Mark tries to reason. Yeah, but the monolith was solid, but this you can't even feel. I mean, you feel something, but it's not solid. It's like the opening to a a zone. I think it's a doorway, Dustin concludes as he takes a selfie with the rectangle. A doorway to where, Retrice asks. I don't know, but I want to find out, Dustin declares. No, stay back. Don't touch it again, Mark warns. I just want to put my foot inside. I mean, see if it's possible to walk around in there, Dustin replies. Dustin, Mark shoots Dustin a don't-you-even-think-about-it look. Just my foot, Dustin negotiates, as if the two were only trying to come to agreement on whether or not to venture into a used bookstore before, during an afternoon of window shopping that's run long, making them late for a lunch day. Dustin creeps back over to the black rectangle and sticks his foot in the darkness, and, to his surprise, sets it down on something solid. There's something there. I mean, it's stable. It feels like a floor. I'm pretty sure you can stand in it. That's great. Now, come back out, Mark pleads. I just just want to see inside for a second. Dustin turns around and looks back at Mark. I mean, nothing that feels this good could be that bad. Dustin faces the rectangle again and sticks his head in the blackness, leaving only half his body sticking outside. Dustin, come back out now. Dustin steps all the way through, as if he saw something he just had to explore on the other side. There's nothing violent or forced about Dustin's actions. It was as if he is walking across a dentist's waiting room to pick up the only out-of-date magazine he had any interest in reading. Dustin, get out, now! Dustin dashes over to the rectangle and sticks his hand in the zone and feels around. I can't feel him. Retrice picks up the branch she used to probe the black rectangle with earlier. Here, try this. Mark grabs the branch from her and thrusts it in the zone of darkness. Grab the stick, Dustin. He ain't there? I mean, you can't feel him for real? Retrice questions. No, nothing. Here, grab my hand and don't let go, Mark instructs instructs Retrice. Retrice holds Mark's hand and pulls back on it as Mark steps inside the zone. All Retrice can see now is Mark's hand in hers and his one foot sticking outside of the black rectangle, rooted firmly on the ground on their side of the zone. Seconds later, the rest of Mark emerges from the darkness with a panicked look on his face. There's nothing in there. It's just black. Where'd he go then? Mark looks around the park. 
we need a longer stick or a, a rope. Or maybe he, he'll come out when he's ready. I mean, it does feel pretty good in there. Well, that's what I'm afraid of. Here, just stay here. I'm going to go try and find some rope. As Mark steps away, Retrice cries out in fear. It's going away. The black rectangle fades away as if it was melting into thin air. Mark dashes straight towards the evaporating shape that is quickly losing its form. Dusted, Mark reaches the spot where the black rectangle was, but there's nothing left of it. It's gone. He's gone, Mark laments. Mark looks back to Retrice, but she has departed too. Mark spots her running off in the distance and gives chase. Retrice, come back. You're the only other witness. The police won't believe me. You think they're going to believe me? Retrice shouts back. Please stop. Man, I got warrants. The pursuit runs through a more populated section of the park full of families, friends, and couples enjoying the sunny summer day without a care in the world. Mark finally gives up on catching the surprisingly speedy Retrice and stops to catch his breath. He collapses to his knees near a Filipino family celebrating a child's birthday party at a picnic table. The concerned mother of the family brings the coughing and out-of-breath Mark a bottle of water, even twisting the plastic cap off for him. Here, drink this. Mark graciously takes the water and chugs it down thank you i saw you chasing her what'd she steal mark looks up from the bottle at the filipino mother and asks did you see a large black rectangle in the park today um about the size of a door the mother is sympathetic to mark but only to a point she understands the words mark is saying but has no comprehension of his question and why he would be asking it i'm sorry a black rectangle what like a like a door, a door to a different zone. I mean, a place you can just disappear into. My husband literally walked into a black rectangle five minutes ago and just disappeared. I don't know where he went, but I mean, now he's gone. Now the mother understands, perfectly so. She steps back cautiously with the steely look of a protective mother on her face. Take the water and go. We have children here. If you stay, I'll call the police. Mark looks back to where he ran from, hoping to see that the black rectangle had returned. It hadn't. Mark looks as if the weight of the world has fallen on his shoulders, as if a great, ominous secret was just whispered in his ear by the universe, telling him the world, as he knew it, was going to end. The mother pulls out her phone from her pocket and waves the black rectangle in front of Mark's distraught face. I mean it. If you don't leave right now, I'm calling 911. Lady... Be my guest. Chapter 2. You believe me, right? Detective Doug Haynes stared back at the pale-faced Kyler Stennis in the tiny windowless interrogation room. How should he handle this? Just outright disbelief and risk the cocky kid shutting down? Or play along with this bizarre fantasy like you believe him and keep the 24-year-old numbnuts talking, even if it was complete horseshit? Keep him talking. That was the smart play. He'd normally offer the suspect another breakfast bar, but the kid never touched the first one he gave him. Hadn't even taken one sip of water or coffee that was sitting right in front of him either. Throw him some more softballs, something he doesn't have to lie about. Get the truth flowing again. I mean, come on, this was a simpleton redneck making up this ridiculous story. Certainly there was a clue to where the body was hidden in all this baloney. Just make him think you believe him. Keep him talking. You'll solve this damn thing. Yep, that would be the smart play. Just pretend you believe him. Nope, no can do. Thank you, Kyler, for your statement, but how about you do that again? This time with truth, facts, and reality. 
Because truthfully, the fact is you have a missing man's blood on your shirt. And the reality is I need to know how I got there. I told you he slammed into the back of my truck. The airbag must have busted his nose. The blood got on my shirt as I helped him out of the car to make sure he was okay. It ain't that complicated. It is when there's no blood on the airbag or anywhere else in the interior of the car. The only place we found blood was smeared on your shirt, like there had been a struggle. Was there a struggle? The kid's hesitation spoke volumes, and the detective went right after him. I know you want to tell me the truth. I see it in your eyes. Just tell me. I'm here to listen. Kyler finally exhales and shrugs. Okay, fine. I hit him. Guy was in my face. He wanted a fight. He got a fight. So we're talking about self-defense here? Is that how I understand it? Tell me more. Well, there was an accident. The guy wanted to fight. That's it. Except the stuff that happened afterward. Oh, yeah, I, I got all that right here. The detective holds up a piece of paper with some notes written on it. You know what else I have? A witness report from a group of cyclists that you passed that morning. You want to tell me about them now? The revelation surprises Kyler as he is taken aback, worried. You didn't tell me you talked to them. I'm not legally required to tell you what's in their statement, and my boss won't like it, but I will, because I care about you, Kyler. You're not that much older than my own son, you know. Well, anyway, the statement we got from the cyclist was that you slowed down as you passed their group this morning and the Prius that was following behind him. Then you smoked them all out with your excess diesel exhaust and sped off. The cyclist then reported they saw the driver of the Prius chase after you. Man, I passed them by because they were going so slow, taking up the whole damn road practically, too. Truck lets off a little exhaust, so what? Is the idiot occupying the White House going to pay for me to get an electric truck like he pays for everybody else's bullshit? We inspected your rig. We saw you'd remove the particulate filter. That's one way to produce more Prius repellent, isn't it? Hey, I bought it used. Maybe the previous owner made some adjustments. Look, I just drive the thing, man. It ain't against the law. Tampering with an emissions control device? Yes, it is. Well, fine. Book me on that. Rolling coal on some gay-ass bikers in a hybrid. But don't be saying I killed anyone. Don't forget, I called you, all right? I reported this whole thing to 911. I mean, that's a hell of a way to try and get away with murder. Kyler, my friend, and I do want to be your friend here. There are ways to deal with this other than murder charges. I mean, there's involuntary manslaughter, negligent homicide, but you have to help us get there. I mean, tell me what really happened. I told you what happened. You didn't tell me that you hit him before or about the cyclist. What else didn't you tell me? Yes, I punched him once, probably broke his nose, but he wasn't going to bleed to death from it. In fact, after I showed him why I slammed on the brake so fast, that guy was so thankful I did what I did and how I did it. Trust me. I mean, he was so excited when he saw that thing. He forgot all about the fact that I hit him in the nose. I mean, he acted like I was his best damn friend. Detective Haynes rolls his chair closer to Kyler, practically right on him. Look, I know this is hard, kid, but we're making progress here. I mean, at least now you admit to hitting him in your fantasy. The detective shuffles through some pictures on the desk until he finds the one he wants. Funny that you should mention hitting him, because the internal computer on his car is going to tell us exactly when you hit when he hit the back of your truck. The detective holds up the photo of the truck at the accident scene and points to the skid marks. 
Now, eyeballing it, your truck's skid marks still matched up perfectly to their tires. There didn't seem to be any evidence of his blood on the inside or outside of your truck, so I don't think your vehicle ever left the scene of the accident with or without his body. So you believe me that I never left the scene? No, I believe your truck never left the scene. I mean, it really must have pissed you off something awful. I mean, the nerve of this guy to chase after you in his little pussy Prius, didn't it, right? I mean, it would piss me off. Look, I mean, let's just forget about the fact that you belched all that diesel exhaust on them. I mean, like you said, could have been an accident, not your fault. But this guy thinks it is, and he comes at you strong. I mean, you're a man. I get it. He's challenging you. We all would have a reaction to that. I know I would. So you slammed on the brakes to make your stand, and that caused the accident. He got out, confronted you, a fight ensued, and things got out of hand. I mean, maybe you even felt your life was in danger. But before you know it, you have a dead man lying in the middle of the street and a scared kid who probably wants someone he can talk to right about now. I'm that guy, Kyler. I'm the one that can help you. But I have to know what really happened. I mean, road rage gone wrong unfortunately happens all the time, as opposed to what you described to me here, which has never happened ever. But I'll give you credit. You don't exactly strike me as the creative type, so either you have wonderfully exceeded your abilities or you're plagiarizing some science fiction movie you saw on Netflix last night, which isn't exactly illegal, but it is frowned upon. So how'd I do? Kyler dismissively shakes his head and looks away. I want a lawyer. Demanding legal counsel. I'd say I probably did pretty good. You told me when I came in here, I had the right to remain silent and the right to a lawyer. You know how expensive lawyers are? I mean, a case like this could be hundreds of thousands of dollars, maybe a million if you actually want to win. But you know how much your truth costs? Nothing. It's free. I want a lawyer. I want a body. Tell me where he is so I can tell his wife, so she can tell her kids so they don't have to go to bed tonight thinking their dad's corpse is lying face down in some muddy country ditch somewhere. Either get me a lawyer or let me go. We're past all this now, aren't we, Kyler? I mean, we're going to find the body regardless of your cooperation. Yeah, good luck with that. We don't need your luck. We know where and when the crash happened. We know when you called 911. We know your truck never left the scene of the accident. We can figure out how far a man of your size carrying a man of his size can walk and then get back in time to make the 911 call that pinged off that cell phone tower. The detective illustrates this on a piece of paper, drawing an X and then a wide circle around the X. We then create a perimeter, and we walk every inch of that circle until we find the shallow grave you buried him in. Haynes shades in the circle until it's almost full. Then he makes another X in it, where they find the hidden body. Haynes lifts up the drawing of the circle for Kyler's inspection. A circle? Kyler scoffs. A circle ain't the shape you gotta worry about. The door to the interrogation room opens, and inside steps the chief of police, Ryan Clark, and a casually dressed blonde woman with a not-so-casual air about her. She's attractive with the body of a fitness freak. Detective Haynes, you want to step out here with me for a minute? Haynes immediately stands in deference to the chief's unexpected presence. Chief Clark, hello, sir. Uh, This is my main person of interest here in today's disappearance and possible homicide. The woman, in her late 30s, impatiently clears her throat, and the chief takes the hint. Please, detective, in the hall. Who's she? 
I'm from the government, and I'm here to help, the woman says in a deadpan manner. If the Ronald Reagan fans, they'll get the joke about the nine most terrifying words you'll ever hear. If not, who gives a flip? Just get your butt out of here, Barney, because this is my room now. Chief Clark doesn't get the joke, but he does know how important it is for them to vacate the room without revealing too much about his unannounced guest's role there. Look, this is federal jurisdiction now. Let's go, Doug. The feds for a road raid incident? Haynes smirks and looks down at Kyler. Geez, kid, who the hell did you kill? Kyler vehemently shakes his head. Clearly the presence of a federal agent, no matter how she was dressed, has him spooked. I didn't kill anyone, Kyler contends. Haynes sighs and steps away from the table, as if he had just hooked a big game fish, but then had to watch as a hungry shark swims along and snatches the hooked fish right off the line. Doesn't dress like FBI, Haynes notes with irritation. I'm not, the woman replies in a couldn't-care-less tone. Detective Haynes makes eye contact with her as he heads for the door. Well, whatever DC alphabet soup you are, good luck with him. He's crazier than a shithouse rat. The chief puts his hands on the detective's shoulder and guides him out of the room. Kyler looks up at the woman, who stares blankly back at him. She hasn't moved an inch since the two men left. She just stares patiently at him, waiting for him to react first. Kyler senses this and shakes his head as he turns away. I didn't kill anybody. I didn't ask. Kyler looks back at the woman. There's no accusation in her voice, no mind games bullshit behind her cool blue eyes. She knows he's no killer. Who are you? I mean, what part of the government are you with? She sits down with Kyler. I'll tell you, but I can't tell you. Understand? No. Kyler, do you know anyone that works for the CIA? No. That's right. You don't. We good? Kyler puts it together in his head and nods. I get it, yeah. So, I mean, this is serious, right? What I saw today? Serious enough to interrupt my family vacation and have me come in here and talk to you. I was the closest operative in any intelligence branch near here, hence my casual dress. I hope you don't mind. No, I don't care. She turns over the piece of paper the detective had been taking notes on, so that the blind side is now facing up. She slides the paper and pen over to Kyler. Can you draw me a picture of what you saw today? I can't draw. Well, just do the best you can. Anything, really. Kyler takes the pen and draws a rectangle and shades it in black. That's about it. Black rectangle. She studies the picture. What's the scale? Can you draw a person near it? Kylo draws a stick figure next to the rectangle. It was about the size of a door. How close did you get to it? As close as you are to me. Did you touch it? I didn't, but the other guy did. Dumb fucker. I don't think profanity is warranted here. Sorry. Did it hurt him? No, he said it felt good. Made his pain go away. Pain? From the accident. It felt so good putting his hand in the rectangle, he kept putting more and more of his body in until he just went all the way in. Then he never came back out. I mean, the whole then the whole rectangle just disappeared. I mean, dude was gone. I, I didn't know what the hell to do, so I called the cops. I mean, I could have just driven away, but I didn't. And now they want to pin a murder rap on me. I mean, you believe that? Was the rectangle already there when you got to the scene? No, it just popped up in the middle of the road as I was driving. I mean, that's why I slammed on the brakes so fast and got rear-ended. You said it popped up. Did it come up from the ground? No, just out of thin air. Uh, it's like it started as a misty shadow, and a second later it got really dark really quick. I mean, so dark you couldn't see through it. But it wasn't solid. How do you know it wasn't solid? You said you didn't touch it. I didn't. No, I stayed the hell back when I saw that thing. I know what evil looks like, and that thing was evil. 
I tried to tell the other guy that. I mean, at first he didn't want to listen to me about anything. I mean, he only wanted to fight because of the accident. So I punched him in the nose, grabbed him in a bear hug, and carried him over so he could see the black rectangle for himself. And I put the hook in him. I mean, it calmed him down right away. So I let go of him. Tried to tell him not to go near the thing, but he just kept getting closer and closer. I mean, then he touched it. His hand disappeared in the blackness, but he pulled it right back out. Wiggled his fingers, made sure everything worked, and then he stuck it right back in again. I mean, over and over he kept doing this, each time sticking his arm in a little further. How many times did he put his arm in? I don't know, a dozen. Wanted me to do it and see how good it felt. No way. That's just how evil works. Evil always feels good. I mean, look what it did to him. By the end, he was putting damn near his whole body in, but he always left something outside, a hand, a foot, something. But the last time, he went all the way in, and he was gone. Then the damn thing just went away. How did it go away? Describe it. It just faded away like a like a black smoke dissipating, just a lot quicker. How quick? About a second or two, if that. So you witnessed the whole event from beginning to end. From beginning to end. About ten minutes, if that. Damnedest thing I've ever seen. And nothing came out of it. No objects, people. Nope. What noise did it make? Nothing that I can recall. Did you hear anyone talking through it? Russian, Chinese, Arabic. Any other strange or unfamiliar languages? Just silence. I mean, I didn't even hear the other guy after he went in all the way. I yelled for him, too. I mean, if he could have heard me, he would have heard me. Believe it. Any music? No. Did you feel anything like a pulse or a beat? You know how you uh, some people have really loud car stereos and you can feel the bass hitting your chest? Mexicans. I'm sorry. Mexican gangbangers. They have those fucking cars. Sorry, I didn't mean to say the F word. I mean, did, did you feel anything like that from the gangbangers or this thing? This thing. Kyler scoffs and chides her. I told you, lady, it was silent. No noise. I understand these questions are repetitive. They have to be. You have experienced something very rare, and we need to learn all we can about it. We are trying to determine if America is under attack by foreign power. Please, just bear with me, because every little detail, no matter how small or how seemingly insignificant, helps. Sorry, I didn't mean to be a jerk. What's your name, anyway? You can call me Agent Lopez. Kyler is thrown by the name. She didn't look like no Lopez, but, well, whatever. Oh, okay. Did it smell like anything? I don't think so. I don't remember anything, so I'm going to say no. What about heat or coldness? Could you feel a temperature difference the closer you got to it? No, nothing. Did you feel sick afterwards, like it had done something to you? Scared the shit out of me. I mean, still does. Did you feel nauseated, dizzy, experience any headaches? No, I just have some nerves from everything that happened. I mean, I was pretty messed up, but that's the way you should feel when you come face to face with evil. How do you feel now? Talking to you helps. Makes me feel better finally being listened to. Thank you. I mean, physically, how do you feel? Well, just normal outside of being scared. Have you taken any drugs, legally prescribed or over-the-counter in 24 hours? No. What about illegal drugs? You, you won't be charged. No drugs, no drinking. They did a blood test already. You can check it out. I did. You were clean. So why'd you ask me the question? I wanted to hear your answer. You could have also taken something after you took the drug test. I didn't. Very good. Well, 
I think we have everything I need for now. She takes a picture of Kyler's drawing and sends it to someone over her phone. She then stands and prepares to leave. Kyler, I'd, I'd like you to stay in custody with the local police for now. You're not under arrest, and you have a right to leave. However, in the next few days, we may need immediate access to you. If there are any health risks from the exposure to what you witnessed today, then fast access to you could be the difference between life and death. Understand? Yeah, okay, but I'm okay for now. As far as we know, yes. We'd like you not to talk about this with anyone, um, especially the press. I never would. Bunch of liars, all they are. And I would advise you to turn off your phone and restrain from any using any social media. She nods her appreciation and heads for the door. So you believe me, right? I mean, what do you think about all this, Agent Lopez? She stops and turns back to him. I'll tell you what I think, but I can't tell you what I think. Understand? Yeah. I think you're crazier than a shithouse rat. Now keep your fucking phone turned the fuck off. Chapter 3 2001. We got another one, Agent Arjun Bitra announced as he added another photograph to the wall of images. Most of the images were hand-drawn, usually from a simple ballpoint pen in either blue or black ink. There was a full-color sketch by someone with some obvious artistic ability, and there was even one drawn in crayon that a child had done. The others were actual photographs taken with cell phones or stills captured from black-and-white surveillance videos. The one thing all the dozens of images had in common was an ominous black rectangle anchored in the center. Agent Bitra continues to put up more of the pictures after the first in the conference room that was commandeered as a makeshift war room. The analysts that, were, that weren't studying the zone pictures on the wall were seated behind their laptops at a conference room table. Arjun continued, We actually have four new ones, all photographs. This one was taken by a work-from-home mom. The object appeared in the front yard of her house in Grover's Mill, New Jersey. This next one was captured in the woods by hikers in Burkittsville, Maryland, and this third one was taken by a rancher in southeastern New Mexico. See any connections? Beatra asked his fellow FBI analysts. They were a young group, late 20s, early 30s, and more diverse than other parts of the Bureau. They were led by Executive Assistant Director for the FBI's Science and Technology Branch, Noah Godfrey. Godfrey, in his 50s, had seen a lot in his career at the FBI, but he was perplexed by the black rectangles as the rest of his staff was. Godfrey shook his head and offered, They all seem typical of what we've been getting in all morning, completely random. Kate Roush studied the three photos that Arjun had just put up and then turned to him and asked, I thought you said there were four new ones. Oh, right. Agent Brinder remembered as he lifted up the remaining fourth photo in his hand and taped it to the wall. This fourth one was reported by a couple of horseback riders in Bluff Creek State Park in Northern California. It's particularly interesting because it captures an unknown object right before it walks into one of the black rectangles. The fourth photo is a still from the famous 1967 Bigfoot film, the one which has the lumbering Sasquatch glancing backward at the photographer before continuing on its merry way. The black rectangle has been placed right in front of Bigfoot as the behemoth was as if the behemoth was going to step right into the zone. Assistant Director Godfrey and Agent Roush are not amused. You think this is a joke, Agent Beatra? Godfrey chides him. Arjun stands his ground. He had a purpose to what he was doing. Look, if there's a joke here, I don't want it to be on us. I was able to fake all of these photos in less than ten minutes just using Google Images and PowerPoint on my laptop. I mean, 
come on. Not one of you could figure this out before I put Sasquatch up there. Glover's Mill, New Jersey, Burgettsville, Maryland, Southeastern New Mexico, War of the Worlds, The Blair Witch Project, Roswell. Godfrey motions to all the photos on the wall. I take it you think all this is a hoax. Yes, and if you're asking me to prove one of two things, you tell me which is more likely. All of a sudden, these doorways to another dimension of time and space are suddenly popping up randomly, or there's a group of individuals trying to pull off a hoax on the hashtag hungry conspiracy-loving public. I mean, maybe they have a book or a movie they want to promote, or maybe they're just doing this for fun, but I don't want the intelligence community to come out looking ridiculous. I mean, look at the effort that's been put into this so far already today. I think before this leaks out that we're taking these reports seriously, we have to think about the credibility of the intelligent community as a whole. Because the next time we try to stop a rogue nation or a bad actor, people are going to throw people are going to throw this right back in our faces. Black rectangles are going to be the new WMD. Godfrey contemplates Beatrice's argument for a second, and then he shrugs. Well, maybe. Godfrey goes back to studying the wall of his own photos. But you know what I think when I look at all these pictures? 2001. Kate uses this cue to jump into the discussion with her boss and Arjun. The monolith. I actually checked with Warner Brothers to see if they were promoting a special release of the film for an anniversary. They reported no plans. I also checked 2001 fan sites. No chatter or grassroots efforts to try and bring attention to the movie either. Well, nothing out of the ordinary. But if you look at it, she points at several of the zone photos. The corners on these rectangles are rounded. The ones on the monolith were sharp. Also, the monolith was solid. I mean, no one walked into a monolith. Thank you, Kate, for that. But I wasn't talking about the movie 2001. The book? Kate asks. No, not the book either, answers Godfrey. The year 2001. More specifically, September 11th, 2001. You don't know how much that day changed us, the intelligence community. These reports are coming in from all over the spectrum. NSA, Army, Navy, local, state. I mean, this one over here from Alabama was sent in by a CIA agent. What the hell is the CIA doing in Alabama? Arjun asked Godfrey. Field agent was on vacation and was called in to do the interview. Said the witness was credible and the odds of them making the story up were highly unlikely. In the old days, the CIA never would have shared anything with anybody. And honestly, neither would we. We were all siloed off, which made it hard to connect dots. Dots that were from Saudi Arabia and were taking flying lessons. Dots that, while learning how to take off and fly planes, didn't seem all that interested in actually landing them. So, after 9-11, when a bunch of dots start popping up on someone's radar screen... We share that information to see if maybe those dots are popping up on someone else's screen, no matter how weird or strange. Agents, these black rectangles are our dots. We have to connect them. I mean, maybe it's a joke or a hoax. I mean, and if I had to bet money, that's where I'd bet it, 100%. But until we know, we don't know. And we have to take this seriously. Lee Kingsley stands up energetically from behind her laptop at, at the table, like Ego waffles popping up from a toaster to announce, I completed a basic uh, analysis of the 48 incidents that have been reported. Well, let's hear it, Godfrey says. 
Lee uses her hands when she speaks, almost as if she was conducting an invisible orchestra. For the 48 incidents, 17 have involved people actually making contact with the object. Of the 17 incidents where contact was made, there was a disappearance reported in all 17. Kate jumps in. So these things are traps? I mean, you touch it and it sucks you in? Well, yes and no, Lee continues. The reports are that people that disappeared into the zones went in on their own free will. Every single one. However, the reports also state that contact with the black rectangle produces a good feeling. Some even describe it as a euphoric high on par with taking an opiate. So while there's no physical constraint forcing people into these things, you could argue that the euphoric high works as a lure to get people to walk in on their own accord. Arjun interrupts. How do we know what it makes people feel like if all the people have disappeared inside these things? Lee explains, there were other witnesses at the 17 incidents. They heard the description of what it felt like, and some even touched it themselves, but the rectangle disappeared before they could either go in or they got spooked enough seeing the other people disappear that they kept their distance until it went away. Godfrey asks, so what happens if one of these things pops up and there's no one around? I mean, no other witnesses, and that person goes in and disappears. Lee shrugs. It would probably go unreported until people start noticing that person isn't around anymore and figure out they're missing. Godfrey gestures to the wall of photos. So these 48 incidents are just a fraction of what could have occurred so far. Yes, that's accurate, Lee responds. Kate suggests, I think we should be monitoring any recent reports of missing persons, see if there are any unusual rises in the normal disappearance rate. Arjun, taking the rectangles much more seriously now, asks Godfrey, is this us? I mean, some black ops project run amok and gone off the reservation? Godfrey shakes his head. Homeland Security and the Pentagon both say no. Arjun then asks, Well, if this isn't us, then who else could do this? Godfrey responds, The chatter we've been intercepting from the Russians, Chinese, North Koreans, and Iranians all think we're the ones doing it. But they could be a cover because they know we're most likely listening. Arjun asks, What's the Air Force say? Has anyone sent up any birds recently? Kate has this covered. Strategic Air Command says no. Last covert satellite launch was by the Chinese 14 months ago. Everything else has been public knowledge. Arjun keeps pushing. Okay, well, what about a tech company? I mean, is this something Apple or Google could have done on their own? Lee takes this one. Maybe, but it's doubtful. We have sources on the inside of all the industry leaders, and we know most everything they're working on. Unless this is some guy in his garage who got lucky splitting the new atom, we would have gotten wind of it. Arjun feels renewed in his confidence in his original pronouncement. So, it is a hoax. I mean, what else could explain this? Kate offers, maybe it's a naturally occurring phenomenon. I mean, what do you think early man thought of uh, when he saw lightning for the first time, or a tornado, or a rainbow, Arjun contends? Then how come these rectangles have never been reported before, ever? I mean, what's changed in recent days? Lee adds, maybe it's climate change related. Godfrey takes control again of the discussion, as no clear answers seem in sight. At this point, it's as unlikely or likely as anything. The reality is, we're not going to get any real answers until we are on scene with one of these objects. We need a rapid deployment force set up all over the country. A joint military science operation. Get CDC on board. You know, we need to be able to be anywhere in the country in 30 minutes or less. If Domino's can do it, so can we. Kate counters. 
great. Let's get tens of thousands involved. That'll keep things secret for about 15 seconds. Lee comments, well, once Joe iPhone puts one of these objects on Facebook or Instagram, the secret's going to be out anyway. Godfrey turns to Lee. How long would it take for this to go viral? Lee thinks for a second, well, something like this. It's weird. So maybe a few days being shared amongst friends with average social network circles. They would probably bounce to an influence maker and, who knows, right link on the right website? It could be a number one trend in 24 hours, maybe 12 if it's a slow news day. Even then, you'd probably need the mainstream media to legitimize it, and we could always get help in that arena if we need it from our own people on the planet on the inside. They could always slow it down and diffuse it as much as they can. Godfrey steps to the head of the conference room to address them all. There's another director-level conference call in two hours. We need our best assessment by then. I want every witness background analyzed. Find any links we can you can with them. Everyone that has disappeared, I want them checked out. See if there's any electric footprint after their disappearance, ATM withdrawal, cell phone ping, social media activity, anything. If this is a hoax, we can find that out. And if it's not, we need to give our best take on the situation in 120 minutes. Because the same conversation we're having is happening all over the globe in Russian, Chinese, and Farsi. And whoever figures out these black rectangles first may end up with a leg up on the rest of humanity. And God help us if that first place trophy goes to some mullah in Tehran. In the meantime, I'm going to make an immediate recommendation for a rapid deployment force. Special forces only. We need people that can keep secrets. I mean, maybe we can't be everywhere, but if we can get 10, 20 teams together, they can cover a hell of a lot of ground with helos and Osprey. Lee warns, well, you may want to take the SR-71 out of retirement because these incidents average about three to eight minutes. I mean, the longest one we have on record is 12 minutes. I mean, by the time someone reports it and that report hits, report hits our screens, it'll probably be long gone by the time we get someone on scene. Godfrey is adamant. We have to try. If 9-11 taught us anything, it's that. We have to try to connect these dots. Who knows? Maybe we'll get lucky. Who's to say one of these rectangles won't pop up in the middle of Fort Bragg with a bunch of green berets or on Coronado with SEAL Team 6? I mean, imagine those hardcore bastards coming in hot through one of these babies. Chapter 4. Black Hole. I fell off the space station, Heather cries out as she runs to Miss Nancy, who was sitting on a bench monitoring the playground at the daycare center. There was barely a scratch on the four-year-old's knee, but Miss Nancy put down her daily report she was filling out and took Heather's boo-boo as seriously as if she was working the ER. Here, let me see. Where does it hurt? Heather pointed her tiny finger at her kneecap, the pain so intolerable the poor child was unable to produce words. Miss Nancy grabs a wipe and cleans off Heather's scraped kneecap. Will a space band-aid make it feel better? Heather nods her head. Perhaps there was hope after all. What was your space mission, Miss Nancy asks as she applies the Band-Aid. Heather inspects the newly administered space Band-Aid and finally decides that she will live. We were exploring the black hole. Oh, that sounds exciting. Tell me about it. It's big and black and what else? It's shaped like a rectangle. A rectangle? That's right. I think a black hole is supposed to look more like a circle or a whirlpool. Do you ever watch the water going down the drain when you take a tubby? Yes, it goes like this. Heather twirls her finger around and downward as if the water was disappearing down the drain. That's right. So that's what a black hole would look like. 
Well, this one's a rectangle. It looks like a door. That's why Ryan and Thomas went in. But I'm scared to go in. Why? Because it's dark. Well, you can't go through life being scared. You can't let boys be the only space explorers. You show them what you can do, too. Will you go with me? I'll be over in a minute. I'm just finishing up my reports. Will it hurt when I go in? No. Here, I'll give you a special spacesuit that'll protect you from the black hole. Miss Nancy pretends to put a spacesuit on Heather. And here's your helmet, Miss Nancy declares as she places the imaginary spherical helmet on Heather's head. Go on, show those boys what you can do. Okay. Heather runs back over behind the play structure, and Miss Nancy goes back to her the reports. Each report was handwritten, but they basically all said the same thing. Every time a new teacher started at the daycare center, they always asked the same thing. Why don't we just photocopy the daily reports and handwrite a few specific notes for each child? Well, that just wasn't how it was done. Each one was written by hand. It let the parents know there was a real person watching their child that day. Not a copying machine, not an email, not a text, a living, breathing, caring human being. Nancy had managed to complete three more reports after Heather's interruption, but then she heard it, or didn't hear it more appropriately. There was silence. Complete silence on the playground. Silence on the playground was never a good thing. It usually meant that someone got hurt or the kids had discovered another garter snake or a praying mantis. As Nancy stood up from the bench she had been sitting on, she kept waiting for the inevitable cries for her to attend to a bumped head or another scraped knee. But the silence continued. Ten kids are not this quiet, ever. Where were they? They were usually all running around. Sometimes they would be clustered in group play together, or if someone was hurt, they would naturally form a support circle around that injured child. But there was always at least one frightened kiddo that would run to her for help. Not this time, though. Miss Nancy finally walked around the play structure, and before her stood one of the black rectangles. Only one child was in plain view. Little Michael Connor stood near the black rectangle. Michael, where is everyone? Michael pointed to the black rectangle. They all went in the black hall. What was this thing? At first she thought it could have been an art project one of the other teachers had been working on and left outside, but this wasn't anything any of them could have produced. It was as if someone cut a hole out of reality, and it was just an unreal sight, and she just had trouble processing it, especially with the onsetting panic of knowing that where nine of the children entrusted in her care were. What was Michael saying? How could the children have gone in this thing? There was no depth to it. As she walked behind the black rectangle, it appeared to be no thicker than an inch or so. Kids, where are you? She cried out as she looked around the fenced-in playground in a panic. The fence gate was locked, so she would have, and she would have heard nine kids climbing over the chain-linked fence. Heck, she would have heard one kid clanking and rattling their way over the fence as they tried to make their escape. Kids, come out here right now. I'll get them for you, Miss Nancy, Michael volunteered as he ran toward the black rectangle. No, stay away from it, Michael. She reached for him, but it was too late. Always eager to help, Michael ran swiftly into the black rectangle and disappeared into the darkness. Michael, no, come back. All of you, come back out of there. Miss Nancy reached her hand in the black rectangle. She felt a warm buzz go up her arm and feed into her brain. Surprisingly, it felt good. So good, she almost forgot about the children for an instant. She yanked her arm back out when she didn't feel any of the kids. She had no idea what she was facing in this blackness before. She could run into it after the kids, but if she disappeared, who would be left behind to say what had happened? 
No, she had to call 911. She had no idea what this thing was, but let the emergency workers figure that out and how best to get the children out of there. Kids, I'm calling the police and rescue workers. They'll get you out. She looked down to dial her phone, but when she looked back up, the rectangle was gone. What? No. The phone was ringing, waiting for someone to answer on the other end. She felt the air. There was nothing there. No blackness, no warm, inviting feeling. Only the cold reality of nothing. No, 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 the phone finally answered. 911, what's your emergency? To continue listening to Zone, Chapter 5 and beyond, just search iTunes or Spotify for Zone by Russell Corey or visit russellcorey.com.